If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durumple. Now, before we introduce our very special guest today, and you know him, you know him. He has been here before. <laughs> I mean, he's fast becoming a firm favourite of this podcast. I should really explain what we're doing because um, you will have had the excellent Anthony Beaver talking about the Russian Revolution in the last couple of podcasts. And we did it, didn't we, William, in, in sort of macro political terms, the really big chunky issues of the day. Anthony Beaver likes a good battle. He likes uh, so a we chunky. We have plenty of those. <laughs> yes, he does. And he does it and he does it exceptionally well. No one does a battle better than Beaver, it has been said. Oh, try and say that after a few drinks. <laughs> I've only had one. Good. Ah, okay. Well, look, the thing is, there is, though, a, a flesh and blood, really tragic, painful, deeply personal story in the middle of all of this. It's the story of a family that gets wiped out. And that's what we really want to talk about. We skimmed through it with Anthony, but we want to talk about it with somebody who writes with such empathy and power about it that I have to say, and let's int- let's let the sea bag out the bag. <laughs> it's Simon Seabag. Hello, hello. It's great to be here. For an unprecedented fifth time. Seriously, we might as well get a bunk bed for you because you're, you're here <laughs> for play dates quite a lot. I'm in. <laughs> It is very lovely to have you back. And can I just say, William is such a softie that he he cries very easily. But reading your account of the utter annihilation of this family, it did make me cry. It made me cry. I was horrified. I was in pain and deeply touched by the humanity with which you wrote. It can't have been easy. I cried when I wrote when I was writing it. It was just such agony. And we'll we'll come to why. I mean, it was it was agony enough of sort of parents and children being killed, mm. but and teenagers being killed, but. The details are so horrific, but we will come to that in a minute. I have to say that there's been nothing that we've done on this podcast that has led us to such wonderful reading as this Russian series. And to have the pleasure of being able to read Anthony Beaver's 1917 and then come back for the final chapter of Seabag's Romanovs uh, for, I think, what is undoubtedly the sort of epic climax of that book. It's absolutely been the highlight of, of my summer and autumn reading. It's just absolutely wonderful. And so let's start. Let's let's open with, with Nicholas II, who we who we barely sketched when we were doing the revolution. I mean, we sort of rather ridiculously said he had daddy issues, as yeah. as most most czars do seem to have. Just tell us a little bit about this young man born in 1868 at the Alexander Palace, just south of St. Petersburg. What was he like? And how was he different to his father? Well, his father was, was Alexander III, known as the Colossus, a giant of a man, a hard drinker, a Russophile, ultra-nationalist, um, a total anti-Semite, and someone who famously said what has often been quoted by Putin, which is, Russia only has two trustworthy allies, the army and the navy. And he was a, the kind of man who, in the middle of a cabinet meeting, might get up and grab a cabinet minister by the scruff of the neck and lift him off his feet and shake him. <laughs> so that was the sort of autocrat he was. His son, his, his eldest son of three boys was Nicholas, Nicky. 
And Nicky was exactly the opposite of his huge father, who was a study in certainty about all things. He was tiny. He was extremely delicate looking and very handsome with gorgeous blue eyes and high cheekbones, very pale. He grew up speaking Russian, French, some German and English with a perfect Victorian English accent. Mm. And he was extremely shy and he worshipped his father. And his father really didn't do much to train him or prepare him for the succession because he believed he would reign for a long time. But he died incredibly young in his late 40s of liver failure from drinking. That seems to be rather a Romanov theme. We've had a few heavy drinkers. His doctor's banded, but in his big peasant boots, he had boots specially made so he could hide a vodka bottle in them (laughs) and reach in and drink it illegally and then put it back into the bottle. But he suddenly declined radically in 1893-94 of liver failure. There was no cure for it then. And suddenly the boy, Nicholas, who was about 25 by that point, was suddenly close to the throne. And ministers often said to Alexander III, you've got to train Nicholas, you've got to train the Tsarevich for the throne. And he said things like, the trouble with him, he's like a little girl, or he's, he's just a little boy, he doesn't know anything, God help him, how will he'll manage. Mm. But on the other hand, it's always stated that, you know, Nicholas II was untrained for the throne. But how do you train anyone? for absolute power and a role that is really a combination between a president, a prime minister and a field marshal. Seabag, you you give the impression of someone who's incredibly isolated above all. He had friends in the family. And, you know, don't forget, um, Nicky, like like the Kaiser, they were both first cousins of George V, by the way, Georgie in the little royal club. And looked like him. And looked very like him. And Nicky and Willie and Wilhelm, the Kaiser of Germany, were, were second and third cousins simultaneously. So they were all very interrelated. But he was shy. He, probably, he was isolated. And it was hard as a lot of the autocratic friend of Russia to find anyone you could really play with. But he had a lot of, the Romanov family was enormous and he had lots of friends, actually. Did he also, Seabag, internalise some of that inferiority complex that his father inevitably sort of projected on him? I mean, Anthony Beaver said something last week where he wails to his courtiers, you know, who's going to listen to me? I'm just a midget. I mean, how much was the inferiority complex part of his decision making or the way he thought about things or the way he treated people? Well, I mean, the traditional image, which we must dispense with, of Nicholas and Alexandra, his, his future wife, was of a sort of shy person who would have been better sort of retired in the country with the, on a country estate, and that they were rather saintly loving figures. And this really isn't true, because though he was shy and small, and it did help when you were a Tsar of Russia to be a giant, and bizarrely, the Romanov family were all almost giants. There was a whole run of them who were enormous and extremely impressive physically. So, so the fact that he was compared by his own father for, to being a little girl, you know, it obviously, you know, was undermining and he was undermined by his father. But at the same time, he fanatically believed in autocracy, that Russia was an autocrat and that the autocrats were divine monarchs blessed by God with a special relationship with the peasantry. You give an impression of, of a man that's not actually unintelligent, though, although he's isolated and living in a sort of bubble of, of his own sort of sacrality. He reads Tolstoy. He likes Tchaikovsky. He's well-educated. And he's very good at languages. So he's highly intelligent. I don't think he was stupid at all. 
But the question is, did he have political acumen, which is a totally different thing? And the Tsar of Russia had to know what he wanted to do. And also, I mean, you, you point out in your book, The Romanovs, that this is a man who had ambitions greater than his stature. I mean, you know, Sykes-Picot, which is very much in our minds and in the news at the moment, this would have been Sykes, Pico, Sazanov, if he would have had his way. I mean, just just t- tell us a little more about his own idea of what Russia should be in the world. He was an absolute nationalist. Um, he despised the Jews. And, you know, once he went to stay with Edward VII, who, when he was Prince of Wales, and rather hilariously, the Prince of Wales had a whole lot of Jewish people staying with him. And Nicky wrote to his mother, I was very embarrassed to meet these Jewish horse dealers who were all staying with the Prince of Wales, which was very strange. And I just found it sensible not to say anything. And to keep away from them. He believed that the Jews were a major problem in Russia who should all be converted and were extremely untrustworthy and had to be kept under under active repression, along with the other peoples of the empire, by the way. You know, the reason why the revolutionaries who began to organize in his reign, the reason why they were all Poles, Jews, Ukrainians, Finns and Latvians was because these people were 50% of the population of the Russian empire was non-Russian. So they were all repressed. So he was, he was an extreme conservative and he was a Russian imperialist. His plot in the first part of his reign was to expand in, and get Manchuria and Korea. And for the first 10 years, if he died after 10 years, he'd be regarded as a rather successful czar who had almost pulled off Korea and Manchuria, which is northern China, the northern quarter of China. But as, as we know, in 1904, the Japanese attacked him unexpectedly. He was humiliated and defeated. Um, There was a 1905 revolution, and it took him about five to seven years to recover from that revolution. And he becomes very repressive after that. He's he's really quite an autocrat. Well, this is again what I this is again interesting because you know he had this huge revolution when he had to give up a constitution to Russia, and he gave them a constitution, a prime minister, and elections, almost universal suffrage, male suffrage, and a Duma, which was a parliament, and he had to rule with them. Meanwhile, he set about reconquering all of the Russian Empire with absolute brutality. And he often said, you know, kill them all, hang them all. I mean, it almost sounds like Lenin when you hear him. So this is very far from the sort of cliche of the rather sweet, meek little um, Nicholas II. But when you get onto World War One, I'm just desperate to get to answer your question, Anita. Well, yeah, yeah. No, just but just before we get to World War One, though, I mean, just just backing up what you're saying about yeah. the sort of the, this misinterpretation of this, you know, poor frightened youth who's rather soft and like a little girl. I mean, you know, after 1905, Richard, you know, he funds a group called the Black Hundreds. They're not lovely, are they? I mean, tell us about the Black Hundreds. Sort of proto-fascists. The, the Black Hundreds are proto-fascists who who organise pogroms against Jews all over Russia. And his father had sort of encouraged pogroms against Russia. They really started in 1881 with the assassination of Alexander II, the Tsar who liberated the Serbs. The assassination is important to Nicholas II because as a little boy of seven, he was taken in after his grandfather had been blown to smithereens by the assassin's bomb, which blew his legs off. Nicholas Nicholas II, as a boy, was skating they were called to the Winter Palace where his, gra- his beloved grandfather, Alexander II, was gradually bleeding out and dying of shock and um, loss of blood. And little Nicholas, still holding his, roller sk- his, his ice skates, stood there in his sailor suit and looked at his grandfather dying. 
It's very important detail to understand Nicholas II. He had real reason to fear revolutionaries. and He had reason to fear revolution and to believe in autocracy. You know, another reason to, to fear the mob, if he needed any more reasons to fear it, you know, was his rather unsuccessful coronation. Uh, the Cordinka tragedy, I mean, the farce of that, I, I still can't get over it. it. It really was a stampede for free souvenirs, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, and food. And to, talk us through, you know, that what that should have been and what it ends up being. Tsars were always crowned in Moscow, in the Kremlin. So two years after his father had died, at age only 49, Nicky succeeds to the throne. For a second, when his father dies, he weeps and he says, I just don't know how I'm going to rule Russia. But that's always presented again as a sort of sign of terrific weakness. But actually, his father had also wept when he became heir to the throne and his father had wept because becoming Tsar of Russia was a pretty bloody terrifying thing to succeed to. And straight after his father's death, straight after the funeral, I think the day after the funeral, he marries Alexandra, who he's met, first of all, in 1884, at the marriage of his uncle Serge to her sister, Elizabeth. Paint a picture of Alexandra. Who is she? So Alexandra grew up a, a very serious girl, highly neurotic, often ill with stomach cramps, um, rashes, almost, you know, almost someone who was permanently a patient with all sorts of nervous, um, nervous afflictions, but very beautiful with auburn hair, high cheekbones, wonderful jawline, and a, a very intense and religious person, a, a very observant Lutheran. Interesting, Lutheran rather than Greek Orthodox. Yes. She converted a Greek Orthodox to marry Nikki, and that, that's what led to a huge crisis. When they met in 1894 at Coburg for a family wedding, Queen Victoria was there, the head of the family, arrived with a sort of regiment of cavalry before and after her. She arrived in her carriage with incredible grandeur, and she loved going to Germany. But the Kaiser, the young Kaiser, Wilhelm II, was the host, and Nikki was already in love with Alexandra. And they had little nicknames for each other. They'd corresponded from, from 10 years earlier. But now he realised that he was passionately in love with her. She was in love with him. They knew each other since they were 12, wasn't that right? Yes. But the problem was that she was a, a Lutheran and he was the Russian Orthodox. Also, his mum didn't like her, just didn't like her full stop, did she? Well, his mum didn't like her. And also, mm. Queen Victoria was against the whole thing with as it turned out, very good reason, because she regarded the Russians as essentially barbarous. And also, she regarded it as an extremely unstable and autocratic regime, which of course it was. I mean, his grandfather had been assassinated. Alexander III had escaped assassination by another assassination plot, in which, which, was, run, which was partly organized by Lenin's brother, who hmm. was hanged for it, which converted his younger brother, Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, to um, fanatical um, Marxism. Family bad blood everywhere. Mm. Yeah. So, so she was very against, everybody was against it because Alexandra was so clearly a person appallingly suited to a political job. And be under um, no illusion, to be Tsar of Russia, it may have been a divinely appointed autocrat in the eyes of some Russians and the Tsars themselves. But actually, it was a politician's job. It was highly political. And you needed political skills to succeed. You paint her as very strong-willed, but not particularly intelligent or well-educated. Well, the best, the best description of her, which, which says it all, is from someone who knew her really intimately and kind of loved her, who was Count Benkendorf, the, um, the head of the court. 
And he famously said, Alexandra has a will of iron linked to not much brain and no knowledge at all. That's really bitchy. <laughs> it's bitchy. It's, it's bitchy. bitchy. But yeah. as you'll see, as soon, whenever she had a chance to influence pol- policy, she was catastrophic. Right. Catastrophic. Not just, not just slightly unwise, but disastrous. So it was a good, it was a judgment from someone who loved her. But Nicholas goes against everybody's advice. Nicholas goes with the heart and he insists he's going to marry her and they love each other. And it's a good marriage. Yeah. And it's a good marriage. And the Kaiser was really the kind of godfather of the marriage. He advised her to get married, hoping he would have an influence over the new czar. And so they got married two days or just the day after the funeral of his father. So it has to have been the gloomiest marriage ever. And they were so happy to be together. And they had a wonderful marriage. That's the true part of the image. It was an incredibly happy marriage. It was a passionate marriage. We happen to have thousands of their letters from during World War I. And these letters are quite extraordinary. They're written in perfect Victorian English, by the way. Do you have some? You quote them beautifully in, in, in your book. Can we, yeah, can, we have, can we have a little reading? Well, I should warn you that they're very sexy, these letters, in, a, in an unexpected way. That's never put you off bub to now. See I think that. we'll be all right. I think we'll be okay. Yeah. Trigger warning. They had nick- Turn off now if you don't want to hear this. They had nicknames for each other's private parts. So she called his Boise. And he called hers Lady. So she would often say in the letters, like, Lady's off games today. How's Boise? <laughs> and he might write back and say, Boise's absolutely ready. And when he was, when he was ready, wherever she was at court, he would whistle and make, make a bird song. And she would blush bright red, whoever she was talking to, and say, I've got to go. The emperor's calling me. Now I'm going to try and read you, which is so unexpected. There's a lot more detail of this in Seabag's book. If anyone wants more of that kind of stuff, this is is so much not what you expect when you when you read about them. Although I don't know why. I mean, Queen Victoria was very passionate with Albert. I mean, you know, why why think that these people aren't crazy about ripping each other's clothes off? Yeah, it happened. Darling, it's hard to believe we could be happier than we have been. We're all placed in God's hands. Life is a riddle, the future hidden behind a curtain, united for life at last. This is him speaking. And when this life is ended, we meet again in the other world. So they combine Victorian prudishness with this kind of extraordinary private passion, Mm. Lady and Boise. And so, for example, they would write, this is her, I burn with impatience to see you as soon as possible, she wrote, to feel myself in your arms. I long for you terribly. And when he was away, she'd say, Nobody to kiss and caress you, she said. In my thoughts, I'm always doing it, my darling angel. It's a wonderfully complex and, and complete portrait you give in the book, Seabag. I have to say, I absolutely yes. loved it. Combining this sort of, this intimate description of this couple, very much in love, the fact that they are completely unaware of the of the political climate outside, and also this sort of rampant anti-Semitism, these sort of, yes. these sort of proto-black shirts storming around the countryside doing pogroms, all this happening simultaneously. When she wrote to me, they, they wrote about sex, that she, she called her periods the military engineer. I don't know why that was, that was their code. Well, if you were a woman, you wouldn't have to ask, darling. Yeah. And then, um, okay, that's true. And then, and she would send him quite sexy ones to actually talking about Boise. Hmm. And she said, here's one where she says, tell Boise that Lady sends him her tenderest love and kisses and thinks of him always during the lonely, sleepless nights. 
And there's just one more that I have to read you, which is quite fun. She says to him, I'm missing Boise. But he writes back and says, my sweet lady, I kiss you. I love you and want you. Oh, he says, so naughty. (laughs) (laughs) Kenneth Williams. (laughs) (laughs) And she replies, this is all written down in perfect English. And she replies, sweetest lovey of mine. I adore your adorable expression and the shyness that creeps over you and makes your sweet eyes all the more dangerous, you old sinner. Oh, it's so, it's so lovely. So, dear reader, you won't be surprised that they had five children. Um, so, Olga, Titania, Maria, Anastasia, and the fifth, a boy called Alexei. Yes, and they were, they were known as Otmar. They called themselves Otmar. Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia. So just like the firm. Well, look, it's a a good point to take a break. After the break, come back to us because we're going to talk about the mad monk, some say Rasputin. Welcome back. Okay, desperate to do this because he's such a fascinating character. Tell us about Rasputin, because, you know, the rah-rah Rasputin, lover uh, lover of a Russian queen, I put it to you. The song of Boney M is a very good analysis of, of early 20th century Russian court politics, but some of, so it, has a few, it has a few flaws, one of which is she was never the love of the Russian queen. Is this the first time disco has made it into our podcast? It could be. They were both very shy, very controlled, very secretive people who um, she had no friends whatsoever except really him. And one lady in waiting, um, Anna Vibrova. Is that partly because she was foreign? She was from S. Well, she, she, she felt very, she felt very isolated. She learned fluent Russian, though. She converted and took to orthodoxy. But she early on, I, I mean, she always consulted with him about politics. Now, Rasputin is important. The way you should see him is not so much the sort of giddy, lecherous Russian peasant, but rather as a, as a, as a court favorite, the last of the great court favorites. You know, the most talented have been Potemkin. The least talented was Rasputin. And when he arrived, she and Nikki had already had four girls and they desperately wanted a son to succeed to the throne. And when she had her second daughter, um, Tatiana, when she was handed the baby uh, uh, exhausted, she said, oh my God, what will the nation say? So a lot of pressure. She had a false pregnancy, which turned out to be extremely embarrassing. And she, they had before Rasputin had an earlier mystic sort of um, guru called Dr. Philippe, who was a, a butcher's boy from Lyon with magical, mystical powers who had tried to get them a son. And finally, they had got the son, Alexei, in, 19, in August 1904. And um, they were absolutely delighted. This is a sort of Russian version of the sort of crazy Edwardian mysticism we had in our young husband expedition. Uh, exactly. It's exactly like that. It's, and it's the same people. Yeah. You know. But Rasputin himself, I mean, you know, the image that is conjured up apart from, you know, Bernie M and the, the spinning. So, so I mean, I, I, I was told as a, he was quite an unhygienic character, large, smelly. And you said, you know, don't sort of characterize him as lecherous, but the man put it about a bit, didn't he, for a month? He did. I mean, you, you know. His wife, who he was wildly unfaithful to, said, like, said, Grigori, you know, is wildly unfaithful, but he's got a lot to give, she said, ambiguously. And boy, did he give it. I mean, who, who, <laughs> who was he giving it to, Simon T. Bagmontefiore? He started off stealing horses, chasing girls in a small village in Siberia. 
And then he became a stranic, a, a holy wanderer, and a staretz, a, a sort of el, a, a mystic. It means elder, but he was young. And he started to wander Russia, reading the Bible, visiting the remains of saints. And, um, and he started to believe that he could cure people. And physically tall, centre-parting, ragged hair. Ragged, wild hair, gorgeous, gorgeous, blue, bright eyes. Um, hypnotic eyes, which were fascinating. And he had a sort of, he was charismatic. He had the gift of the gab. However important or grand the person he met, even the even the Tsar and Tsarina, he had a way of treating them in a very informal, offhand way. He often questioned um, members of the royal family about their sex life quite uninhibitedly, which they all found fascinatingly um, <laughs> uh, refreshing. And he specialized in talking to what were essentially kind of the wives of, of sort of stiff Victorian men about their sex lives. But he obviously believed that he had these powers. Now, whether he was really a mystic, a hypnotist, or just a sort of thespian showman, we just don't know. But he had a powerful effect. His sex appeal I describe as feral and pungent. <laughs> Is that a reference to the smell again? Yeah. The smell of him, yeah. <laughs> but the smell of him was, yes. I mean, men grumbled about the smell of him. Yeah. No women grumbled. I, I spent a bit of time with, with Russian Orthodox monks on Mount Athos, and, and, and I have to say hygiene is not no. one of the top priorities. No, but no women, all the sort of grand men he met at court, prime ministers and counts and stuff, they all grumbled that he smelled. Mm. But no women ever grumbled. I mean, he could have bottled it and sold it as, a, as an aftershave called Rasputin. <laughs> There is a thing in orthodox monasticism about smell. And there's a phrase I remember from some early desert father about the smell of his piety could be could be smelt sort of <laughs> half a mile away. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Anita, can I just say how he became yeah. important? In 1904, when Nicholas and Alexandra were facing two terrifying crises, on one hand, the war against Japan was going catastrophically wrong and protests were beginning all over the Russia. On the other hand, they'd got the son they desperately wanted. But 11 days after being born, his navel started to bleed uncontrollably. And they realized that he had the terrible disease of the English family, which they called it. They decided to keep this secret for reasons of state so that he could succeed to the crown. A decision that placed them under incredible strain and stress, of course, because he was going to have haemophiliac attacks. How to explain this? Just as this, at this moment, the Montenegrin princesses, Militza and Stana, who were married into the family, Alexandra hated them. She called them the Black Crows. <laughs> but they introduced Nikki and Alex to a very fashionable, uh, early 30s monk and holy man, Rasputin, who arrived. They were immediately dazzled with him. He kind of seduced them, charmed them with his informality, his power, his confidence. Now, it wasn't just that when um, little Alexei had an attack, he could somehow calm the attack. I, I believe that partly it was because he could calm the mother who mm. became hysterical. But whatever it was, in the worst attacks, he would even send telegrams and said, the little one will survive. But at the same time, he was both consigliere, psychiatrist and priest to both the couple. And in a way, he was as important to Nikki as he was to Alexandra. In fact, Nikki said... I couldn't have gone on ruling without the advice of Rasputin. There's a letter that Alexandra writes to him, which sort of tells you just how much in his thrall she is. You know, how can I thank you enough for everything? 
I wish only one thing to fall asleep on your shoulder. You are our all. Forgive me, my teacher. I know I have sinned. I tried to do better, but I don't succeed. I love you. I believe in you. God grant us the joy of meeting soon. I kiss you warmly. Bless and forgive me. I am your child. I mean, it, it sort of conjures up an image from a Madonna video, you know, like a prayer. It, it, it is that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she she needed him and he gave her confidence and he became a part of the family. And for Nicholas, he became like a psychiatrist and consigliere. And the more hated he was, the more scandalous he was, the more people report, you know, prime ministers came and said, you've got to get rid of this man. The more she said, they hate him because we love him. And they saw him as a Christ-like figure, even though he soon became a drunkard, drank heavily, exposed himself, exposed his penis to anyone he could find, jumped into the beds of ladies-in-waiting, may well have raped several of them. Um, so, you know, he was, an, he was an extremely louche and abusive figure. And yet they begin turning to him more and more, even for political appointments. Well, that's what happened. Just to jump ahead... So in 1905, the revolution happens. They lose control virtually of the country. He gives a constitution and he has, then he has prime ministers and he gradually claws back power. Having you know, agreed to a constitution and a Duma, which is an elected parliament, he gradually calls back power so that by 1914, just jumping ahead, he is actually really ruling Russia absolutely again. And so when 1914 comes, Actually, Rasputin advises strongly against going to war. And Rasputin actually intervenes to say, don't persecute the Jews, don't go to war, it's the peasants that will die in the army. So his advice isn't bad at that point. But when 1914 comes, Nikki tries to resist going to war. But after the Bosnian crisis of 1908, when Russia had been humiliated, there was no way he could avoid going to war. And he was also, you've got to remember, a Romanov. And a Romanov wanted to expand Russia and Russia to be a great power. So he was always going to go join World War I. World War I was at first a, a success, then almost instantly a total catastrophe, a great retreat. The Russian army pulled back, lost Poland. And Nicky realized that he himself would have to take command of the army. What he should have done is appoint someone efficient to run the army and someone efficient to run the home front because there was an immediately, like everywhere else, a huge munitions shortage, as there was in Britain and France and everywhere and Germany. Like in like in the current campaign with Putin, everyone using their stocks in, in a matter of yes. weeks. And also food supplies became short immediately. So he his whole job was to run Russia properly and he didn't. He instead sort of looked for glory by taking command of the army at Stavka headquarters, which was 600 miles away from the capital, Petrograd. And he really wasn't capable of being a warlord. But they all wanted to be Peter the Great for reasons that we discussed in earlier episodes. And when he went to the front, he was no longer able to run politics in the capital. But fearing control of other people, by character as a politician, he was extremely cunning sly. He boasted to Alexander, he said, you've no idea how sly I can be. But his ministers knew. And so he was extremely manipulative. As he himself said, what I like to do is say yes to all of you, and then I'll do my own thing, my, whatever I choose. So he was an extremely unwise politician. And he was extremely jealous of his talented ministers. He had two really brilliant ministers, particularly Peter Stolypin, but he undermined Stolypin. And actually became very jealous of Stolipin. He said, he's my best prime minister. 
But he often, but oftentimes he shouted. He said, "You know, why should I read in the papers that the prime minister's done this and that? Who am I? Am I a nobody? Don't I count for something?" Again, surprisingly, he was cunning. He was sly. He was undermining to his ministers. He's extremely jealous and preferred to have talentless people than gifted people, which is extremely bad qualities for a politician. Particularly in the middle of a war. He also, I mean, you know, because of love or whatever, or, you know, sort of mistrust of everyone else, he would write from the front back to his wife, who would promptly show all of this sort of military intelligence to Rasputin. Correct. And and the generals hated that. Disastrous, isn't it? I mean, to have somebody who is not involved and has no flesh and blood to lose at the front giving them all of that information. These are the two points where the two things you wanted to discuss very quickly happen. First of all, Alexandra now becomes a huge political power, which she hadn't ever been before. She boasted that she was the most powerful woman since Catherine the Great. And she was right. She was the most powerful woman since Catherine the Great. She was also utterly incompetent, lacking in any judgment at all. She knew nobody in Russian society because she hated them all and they hated her. She'd cut off relations with them. She despised politicians. And as a, pol- as a politician herself now, she needed to be involved with politics. So she consulted the no- most unsuitable person in the world, Rasputin. And he <laughs> made a mockery of the Russian government through her. Though the responsibility is of Nicholas and Alexander. You can't blame Rasputin. Mm. But it was disastrous. Ministers changed every day. They tried to kill each other. They bribed each other. Some of them tried to kill Rasputin. Rasputin was going crazy, getting drunk, pulling his penis out. It was a disaster. <laughs> Meanwhile, 1.7 million soldiers had been yeah. killed at the front already. You have a wonderful thing here that uh, one of his cooks goes on to cook for Lenin and Stalin after the revolution, and his name is Spiridon Putin, the grandfather of Vladimir. Yes, he, the, he cooked in the Astoria Hotel, which is still a hotel in, in St. Petersburg, which you may all have stayed in. I have. And he was the chef there, and Rasputin often came there and apparently would often kind of blunder into the kitchens and sort of probably to eat soup out of all over himself. He always had food in his beard. But just to go back to Spirodin and Putin, the grandfather of Putin later became the cook for Lenin and Stalin. He's probably the most world historical chef in all of world history. Well, until until we've had the Wagner group. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and the Wagner group and the, and the catering, catering in, in that. Um, listen, just to, to kind of give people the feel of how much Rasputin is hated, even though, as you quite rightly say, this is, you know, two royals who are screwing up here by giving him this much intelligence, that that you published this uh, one, rather wonderful poem that was circulated by newspaper editors. It's very filthy. It's totally unsuitable for a podcast. Here goes. <laughs> Could you read it? Oh, no, you can. Yes. Brother, no matter what you say, Russia is ru- ruled by the cock today. The cock appoints ministers. The cock makes policy. The cock commands the troops. The cock steers the ships. So the cock is mighty and powerful. I think that's enough, cock. Completely unsuitable for this podcast. It's wonderful. Just to finish, it says, the cock fucked the ladies in waiting. There's, the cock fucked the czar's maiden daughters. And most of all, it fucked the czarina. So, I mean, you can just see that, and this is circulating in newspapers. This is where Boney M get it from. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> these things that sort of suddenly proliferate and they become truth. But it is something what happens to powerful women. Mm. And it happened to Marie Antoinette, exactly the same thing. 
you know, there, there were rhymes in the French Revolution that she was she was a lesbian. You defended so valiantly Catherine the Great. You got very annoyed yes. about those rumours. I did. I was very annoyed. Yeah. So, so Catherine the Great, Marie Antoinette, this is just a very unfair rumour. But that letter you read out where she says she wants to kiss his feet mm. was an with the most extraordinary letter written to a private citizen by any monarch in the whole of the 19th and 20th centuries. But, you know, at the same time, Nicholas and Alexander still had, even though the war was going extremely badly, even though the government was losing all prestige, even though the ministers were a bunch of, of charlatans, weirdos and criminals and near murderers, and one of them was, was half mad with syphilis, even though all of this was going on, they were still extremely ambitious to expand the Russian Empire. And that's why they made the deal with Sykes-Picot. In our Lawrence of Arabia episode that we did with the fabulous Anthony Satin, we talked about Sykes and Pico. We talked about France and Britain. Yeah. But what would have been and could have been a large part for Russia? Can you just talk us through that? Because it's sort of yeah. the lesser known adventurism of that time. Well, uh, well as you know, Sykes Pico never actually happened for various reasons. And there was a new a agreements were made, you know, in 1918 and in the early 20s. But anyway, but the Sykes Pico was also joined by Russia. So it was the Sykes-Picot-Sazonov agreement. And what it was, was a sort of division of the entire Ottoman Empire. You've set the stage for Rasputin and the hatred that is simmering for him and how you know his masters aren't really helping very much. At what point do they decide to do something about it? I mean, there have been plots to kill Rasputin um, all through World War I. And actually someone had tried, to, a, a lunatic had stabbed Rasputin right before, in 1914, right before the World War I had begun, and he'd almost died. So by 1916, most of the establishment had realised that A, Nicholas and Alexander were disastrous, especially Alexander. And it's now that Benkendorf said that comment about her being stupid with an iron will. She thought she was doing extremely well, by the way, with Rasputin and um, being utterly oblivious. She still confided in Rasputin, but a group of people, MPs, politicians, and Prince Felix Yusupov, a, a rather effete aristocrat, married into the royal family. Ex-Bullingdon Club, importantly. Ex-Bullingdon Club in Oxford, and a really fascinating character, bisexual, a cross-dresser, an aesthete, highly intelligent character, and sort of courageous. He and his friend, Prince Dmitry Pavlovich, who was another, uh, was, was a Grand Duke in the Romanov family, a cousin, and a favourite of Nikolai Alexandra, they decided that they would have to kill Rasputin. And therefore, using the leer of Yusupov's famously gorgeous mother and wife, both of whom incredibly good looking, they leered Rasputin um, to the Yusupov Palace, which is still there in, in St. Petersburg, and you can visit it. Can I just for a moment go, ew? What, they yeah. said, come and, come, and, come and see my beautiful mother and my beautiful wife? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And by the way, a lot of people knew about this plot and were encouraging them, including, amazingly, Alexandra's own sister, Elizabeth, and her best friend, Princess Yusupov, the mother of Felix Yusupov. So people very close to the royal family and members of the royal family were part of this plot to kill him. And so they invited him. And of course, Rasputin, who was loved meeting members of the royal family, loved beautiful women, couldn't resist coming. And he turned up there at the Yusupov Palace. They took him into the uh, cellars there, the sort of basement, which was sort of a sort of um, like done up almost like a sort of party room by Felix Yusupov. And the other people who were involved almost certainly were the British who wanted to see Rasputin killed. And 
the British Secret Service, which was in a very nascent state, it was a very early version of the Secret Intelligence Service, was almost certainly behind um, or backing the assassination and may even have been involved in killing Rasputin. I think we have to work through it because they don't just kill him. My my old um, Russian teacher used to love love yes. reenacting how do you kill up one Rasputin and yes. he kept sort of he kept telling me stages or telling the class station and going ha ha but I still live <laughs> <laughs> so I mean just take us through how hard it is to kill Rasputin well, when they arrive they have a doctor prepare cyanide cakes to spoil the story a little bit cyanide can degrade and you know if it's kept too long maybe an old cyanide it may have been old cyanide all along but they gave him cyanide they got him to eat it he sort of went to sleep at one point it may have worked a bit but then suddenly woke up and reared up and attacked Yusupov, who was terrified while he's foaming at the mouth i mean he's properly scary looking he's being sick he's foaming at the mouth and so they shoot him then he kind of totters around and collapses, and they think he's dead. But then he stands up and goes, ha-ha, I'm still here. And they're just yes. all celebrating. They all yeah. celebrate that he's the, the Satan is dead. Mm. When he appears again and runs out into the courtyard of the Yusupov Palace. Which is covered with snow. It's the middle of the night now. It's, it's December 1916, this, by the way. And so, so he runs out, and it's then that someone comes out with a massive revolver, like one of those ones that you see in cowboy films and walks up behind him. And Rasputin is not moving very fast. He's probably kind of on his knees, or, or if he's standing, he's swaying and staggering, kind of dazed, and bleeding internally. Somebody goes up to him and literally executes him with a shot to the head. And you think that might be the British? It might be the British. It might be, um, the details are in the book, but it, it's not a conspiracy theory. It is almost certain that the British were somewhere, involved, and there may have been a British diplomat present. But let me tell you something. He, he, I think I think one has to look, I look at this slightly differently. I mean, you could say that they were brave conspirators, but actually they lured this peasant. A whole lot of, our, I mean, we could look at this differently. A whole lot of kind of rather sort of... Loose Bullingdon aristocrats. Lure this peasant who's made it to their palace and then poison him, shoot him, and then shoot him at point blank rage, basically mm. in the forehead. You know, they basically in all mass kind of kill the sort of kill the beast. And of course, they then drive him out to the river. They weigh him down with chains. They make a hole in the, in the ice and they push him under it. Mm. And it's possible at that point that he breathes and is still alive after all this. There's some versions of the story that say that when his body is found, he's been scraping at the ice with his fingers. You don't say that yeah. in your version. Yeah, there's no, there's no yeah. truth in that. There's, no truth, truth. In there's that. no truth in that. The truth is supposed to be that it was water in his lungs. But again, that's not completely confirmed. Mm. But he was a hard man to kill. Well, you, you might say. I mean, when does the news reach the Tsar and Tsarina? When they and, find and out about it, they are absolutely horrified, cannot believe it. Um, they take immediate control of the body. They bury him on a royal estate with loving care. And later, the body is dug up, by the way, by revolutionary soldiers who cut the penis off it and parade it around. And it has its own history, the, the detached penis. The detached penis has, however, it was sold around the world. And, and there was also <laughs> a sea cucumber that was sold for, for money and appears in some sex museum in Paris, 
which is in fact a sea cucumber, is not Rasputin's. Uh, uh, are, you, are you sure? Are you sure? I'm just asking. I, I have to admit I haven't inspected it. I, should, okay. I need to do a site visit. But can I just finish by saying, just, yes. it, this made no difference to the way Nicholas and Alexander ruled, which mm. showed that it really was their decision to rule as they, as they did rule, always avoiding appointing talented ministers, always appointing kind of sycophantic ministers who actually were utterly incapable of, of governing and providing food and munitions, which were the two key things they needed to make Russia work. Well, I mean, things are not looking good then for the Tsar and Tsarina. They've lost their most trusted, if greatly incompetent advisor, uh, Rasputin. Flawed, but well endowed. Okay. <laughs> Can we leave his penis alone now? I mean, I never thought I'd say that in the podcast, but let's just back away. We're providing many, many opportunities for our beepers to beep us. Anita, I can't believe you've actually said that at all. I think that's a very popular line of yours. Oh, yes. Well, I do. Yes. We seem to have got a little distracted <laughs> in this episode, which Talked has gone about on. right honourable members a bit too much, I think. No, 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 enough, enough. So we now have to end this episode. It's gonna, We're going to have to start all over again and bring Seabag back another time. We've done it again. To tell us about the murder of Nicholas and Alexandra. Yeah, so until then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. Goodbye from me, William Dalrymple. <laughs>